welcome to another episode of No Small Jobs. As always, I'm your host Paul Newen. Thanks for joining us. Uh, if you have, uh, if you join us for the first time, welcome, uh, and make sure you check out all the other episodes as well. You don't have to listen to them chronologically. There's no real evolution. You can skip and jump as you feel like. But uh, there's two seasons worth of content there for you to check out. Even if it's a career that you hadn't considered yourself, that's okay. Sometimes it's just really interesting to hear how other people's lives are lived and where they got to their point. And if you are in the midst of a career change or a career reevaluation, this is the place for you. Uh, check out the website nosmalljobspod.com.au uh, on it has the episode links as well as some random reflections uh, and ramblings that run through my head about each podcast and particularly the, uh, the philosophies and ideas about um, career change and happiness and all kinds of big themes uh, also make sure that you follow us at nosmalljobspod on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook where you get previews of the upcoming episodes as well as some other random articles and interesting tidbits so today I have a very special guest. I have James the Trady, who is also my producer. Thanks for coming on the show, James. No, thanks for having me. I've been waiting. I've been waiting <laughs> as we do the what twenty four odd episodes now. I've been waiting for my turn. So I'm excited <laughs> to be here. All right. So, um, how, firstly, what was your trade, and how did you get into it? Well, I'm I'm a carpenter by trade, which is you'll hear a lot of people say <laughs> by trade. Um, mm. It's not what I do now, but it's along those lines. But uh, look, pretty much for me. Becoming a tradesman, I, I went to a prestigious private school, um, had a good education. I don't think I'm an unintelligent person. I found school quite uninteresting. I, mm-hmm. I didn't have the passion. I was that guy, I'm, I'm super into sports and NFL is my main sport I'm into. I'd sit there in math class and be so bored and dislike it so much that I'd sit there writing out teams rosters yeah. by memory. <laughs> and I remember m- my dad you know, found the teacher was on there. He's like, he doesn't even do his work. He's sitting here writing bloody names for teams on a bit of paper. Mm. And dad pulled it up and was like, obviously he was pissed off with me. He's like, listen to your school. Like, don't be... D-. Mm. And, he, and, he, and he looks at it and goes, what is this? And I said, oh, they're team depth charts for players. And he's like, is this from memory? I'm like, yeah. And he goes, well, you're not an idiot. Because <laughs> how are you remembering all this stuff? You can't be stupid. You just, it's not possible. And I'm like, well, I just, yeah, I just didn't find school interesting. So to me, I kind of made a decision in, in year 10 that, whether I wanted to go and, and finish my VCE or I wanted to go out and become a tradesman, I decided to stay and do my VCE and it was the best decision I ever made. I think just having that in your back pocket is something that's really good. People never people really ask you, like, what did you get on your VCE? But every job will ask you if you've done it, if you completed mm. high school. Yep. So I would recommend anyone who wants to become a tradesman, finish school first, no matter how bad you are at it or how bad you think you are at it, give it a good crack, finish, and then go into being a tradesman. Um, as soon as I finished school, I looked at going to uni. I kind of wanted to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, then the thought of going to uni for four or five years and my inter-score wasn't great. So it would have had to be in kind of a rural location, Bendigo, Ballarat, that sort of thing, away from my family and friends and um, you know my football and all that sort of stuff. And I just thought, you know what? I'm just not interested. Uh, what can I do that can make me some money and get some, some skills? And a few of my mates were carpenters and they basically said, look, it's a good job. You work in the sun, you know, you work with your hands. It's good labor. Um, It's a skill you can take home in the future. If you buy a house, you can renovate it yourself, all that sort of stuff. And I thought, you know what? This sounds awesome. I'm just going to give it a try. Um, I tried it and I did. I I enjoyed it. It It was good. It was a good job. It's a hard job at times. It's rewarding at times. It's not rewarding at times like I think most jobs are. But that's kind of where I made that decision it was a fear of basically not doing any more you know study that pushed (laughs) me into a trade so talk me through what an apprenticeship actually is because i i'm surrounded by intellectuals and people Mm. who have degrees so the the concept of apprenticeship is actually really foreign to me so basically carpentry apprenticeship you spend the first year so it's a four-year apprenticeship Mm. in that time you spend roughly one week in every five weeks at tafe learning you know modules and all that sort of stuff which really was the biggest waste of time of the whole thing you learn more of the stuff on site than you <laughs> do in, in the TAFE um, but you have to do it in terms of getting the the Cert 3 in construction which is what you want as your apprenticeship uh, basically the, the first year you'll pretty much pick up a broom and cleaning up site you know <laughs> my first year and this is where something where I, I did did well as an apprentice was you know I'm a bigger guy and bosses loved me because I could lift the heaviest stuff and mm. dig stump holes and <laughs> clean up rubbish and I didn't mind doing it. I didn't mind just shutting off my brain and sitting there for a, a few hours digging stump holes and then concreting in stumps and doing that sort of you know basic 
labor intensive work. I, I liked doing that. Um, and then you kind of, you know, in your second year, they expect you to start doing more carpentry stuff. So working on your framing and, and finishing and working, you know, probably one-on-one with a carpenter a lot, which again was good. And then when you hit your third year and your fourth year, your third year, you should really be at the, the stage where you can be sent to a job site, have someone monitoring you obviously and watching what you're doing, but not breathing down your neck. It should be, James, go grab your tools out of your car. You're doing this today. Let me know if you need anything. And you should be able to pretty much work at that you know, without too much assistance, maybe a question here and there, hey, how should I do this? How do you want me to do this? That sort of stuff. And then fourth year, really most bosses by fourth year, they expect a carpenter to be pretty much doing what a qualified carpenter does. Um, and you know, and then once your fourth year ends, you get your cert three, a little bit of paper. And basically you can go around telling everyone you're a qualified carpenter and trying to earn more and more money. Cause that's when, you know, obviously the wage isn't great as an apprentice. And then when you hit your fourth year, you know, your final year and get your bit of paper, that's when you can really go and earn some good money. I mean, the, uh, I, I had a few patients who were going through apprenticeship programs and it was very mixed reviews about the apprenticeship experience. What was yours like? It depends on the boss. I, I had two bosses during my time. So well, actually I had three. My first boss lasted a month. Um, and realized it was just me and him and he realized I can't afford to keep you. I've completely overdone it here. I don't mm. have the work to make the money to keep you around. Mm. And I was like, okay, I, I didn't get, obviously it was, you know, your first time you kind of get let go from a job. It was, I was 18 years old. I thought, God, I'm a loser. And <laughs> it really wasn't the case. It was just what it was. And then I went and worked for another guy who, he was a, he was a good boss, but he was our older guy was very money driven, very driven on getting things done, getting things completed and making the money, which you know a lot of businessmen are, which I get. Um, but he didn't seem to have as much care for his, you know, his workers as as other guys. And then I actually left with a carpenter that was there, he went out to start his own business and I left with him and went with him and worked with him for about seven years after that. So I finished my apprenticeship and worked for him for a long time after that as well. And um, I had a great relationship with him. I still still talk to. I haven't worked for him for a few years now, and still talk to him. You know, probably three or four times a month, and we have a great relationship. So I was kind of his first worker, and that was great because he was more about you know working together and building his business, and um, did did quite well in the end. So that was yeah. It just depends on your experience. You can get guys that are you know are, are real assholes to work for, I guess, but mm. you can also get guys that treat you really well. I think it's getting harder to be that that first one because obviously there's a lot more rules and regulations around how you treat people as workers now, especially mm-hmm. in the trade industry. Um, Safety is a lot bigger thing now. You can't just make guys climb on roofs and do whatever you want them to do. You've got to have a lot more care for workers because if they get hurt, you can you know pay a very big price for that. Mm. Um, so the thing has changed over my you know 15 years or so in the trade industry. It's definitely changed, but yeah, there I'm sure there's a lot of guys that have terrible, terrible you know, recollections of what trades were like and um, bosses were like. But I said, my thing was, it was what it was. It was hard work someday. You're expected to work hard. Um, It's obviously labor intensive, which is what a trade industry is. Mm. Um, But it was certainly not a bad experience for me. One of the things um, that was mentioned in the episode with uh, you and the ecologist was the idea that um, being an educator, and I guess in, in your case, we, we reclassify the supervisor, actually is not an inherent skill. So your first boss hadn't anticipated the amount of uh, experience you would require and the financial aspects of it to support you. Mm-hmm. The second one sounded pretty um, disengaged in terms of trying to teach you the trade and trying to incorporate you. Whereas the third one, which was your most positive experience, um, was the one who who really included you in it and really gave you the best education. That's that's really telling. Do you? I mean, I, I, I don't. You haven't been. I don't know if you've been on the other side of it, but is there um, you know requirements to become like a some a supervisor? We no. just put your hand up and just say, I'm oh, Well, you have to have a legitimate company, obviously, and prove that you're a legitimate company and show that you're able to pay. Um, but to actually have apprentices, I've never had to get one before, so I don't know the exact method, but you don't have to have any certain sort of qualification or test. As long as someone's happy to work for you and you're happy to work and employ them as an apprentice and you go and you know sign all the relevant documents and say you're going to do this and say you're going to do that, then that's fine. There's also massive bonuses for bosses to have apprentices and stuff like that. The I don't know if it's as much now because back when I did my trade, carpenters, they were in desperate need of carpenters, all trades at that point. Um, so it was kind of, there was lots of bonuses. There was, I think I got a $5,000 bonus the, the day I started as an apprentice because it was mm-hmm. like an incentive to get people to do it. They bought you a bunch of tools to start with and all that sort of stuff, which I don't know if they still do now. Uh, but that was kind of, in terms of do they need any qualifications? No, as long as you were a 
legitimate business, you were able and you're able to employ someone, then there was no issue with you with them hiring you. So, yeah, there was a lot of people that weren't very good at um, teaching people mm-hmm. that were in the position of power and teaching people. That's probably why you have guys that aren't carpenters anymore, or you know, failed at it in in for lack of a better word, but didn't go on with it after their apprenticeship because they weren't taught very well. And then when they finished their apprenticeship and went to work somewhere else, they didn't have any of the relevant skills to be able to make good money and turn to doing something else. I mean, and I guess theoretically speaking, sort of more from an educational philosophy point of view, I guess that was kind of the idea about TAFE. Because it's, it's interesting to hear the way you're describing because it's very similar to the GP apprentice model. So mm. in, in GP particularly, um, you what happens is you finish your degree, you do a few years of minimum hospital time, uh, which is still broad experience. And once you hit the GP program, you are essentially an apprentice. You get assigned a supervisor, you change um, jobs roughly every six to 12 months. Um, and each time um, you, you meant to sort of pick up the skills and and sort of see how different people practice and how clinics are run um but what but there's a there's a much more intensive vetting service into sorry not so much vetting process in terms of um, making sure that the supervisor is meeting the requirements and doing all these sorts of things combined with that they have regular teaching provided by the training organization so once a fortnight to begin with they'll have a workshop where the students will come and they'll be taught rote knowledge. So they'll be given, these are the things you need to know, both for your final exam, as well as basic day-to-day practice. So it was sort of that, it was a way to, at least to some degree, equalize the amount of, and quality of knowledge that each GP registrar had. But as you said, your, your experience you felt was a big waste of time. Why did you think that was? TAFE was honestly, and I don't know what it's like now, but back then it felt like when you got to your week of TAFE, it was like going for a holiday. <laughs> you know, instead of being at work at quarter to seven and being there till five, you were getting to TAFE. You started at 8.30, you're out of there by four, three thirty, four o'clock. Mm. Um, you, the, 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 the big thing I, that I found, this is my biggest takeaway from what my memory of TAFE was, you'd be, they tell you to build this structure. We're going to teach you how to build a, a roof structure this week. So you'd do it and they'd be like, all right, here's your nails, go and start whacking them in you're like well hold on a sec on site we don't use we don't hand nail anything on site we use nail guns Mm. we use power saws they were like here's your handsaw here's your box of nails you've got your hammer off you go so to me i was instantly like why Mm. don't we use nail guns at tafe oh well it's you know you need to learn how to do it like this why Mm. i've in my time and i still do like house reno i've just moved house and done a full house renovation I can't tell you the last time I used a hammer to whack in a nail. <laughs> I use it for a lot of other things, mainly pulling stuff apart, but I can't tell you the last time I hit a nail in with my hammer. Everything mm-hmm. has a power tool now. So that was my biggest takeaway as I was learning how, and then you get to take, you get to back to the site the next week and go, what'd you learn? I said, oh, I learned how to do a roof. Oh yeah, so they show you how to like skew nail with the nail gun and, and traders will know what I'm talking about, but mm-hmm. note it so you don't split the side of the timber. I'm like, no, no, it was all hand nail. And my boss would be like, what? when do you ever hand nail anything i'm like you tell me mate i'm just in, i'm just doing what they told me to do mm. so that that was the biggest takeaway i had from it it was not relevant to what you were doing on site it was like a completely different world and very old school and you you know you're hanging a door and using a chisel to check out the door you know the router out that the hinge you don't ever use, use a tool for that you just put it in set you set it to the depth and it does it all for you now like I get why they were showing you, so you had that skill, but it was not relevant to the trade. It did, it did, it might, it might help me down the road if you got something you want to do that's fiddly and you need it, but it didn't help you for everyday trade life or everyday carpentry life anyway. Um, and it sounds to me like, at least at that time, the taste hadn't evolved to really reflect real life, and that was that was their biggest issue. Maybe because their teachers were a bit older, so maybe they weren't used to using the more modern tools and. Mm-hmm. Um, and once, and interestingly, just to draw a few philosophical associations, it's um, as you said back in school, you you didn't love it, and I think it sounded like a lot of it was partly interest and partly motivation. Mm. So, and I've, I've found that a lot with um, with my kids, particularly, but also looking at um, GP registrars. So they're the student GPs that I that I teach, and. Um, there's there's this educational concept called authentic learning. Authentic learning is the idea that you can't just give someone knowledge. Giving them some knowledge doesn't it doesn't retain well. What you need to do is you need to tie it into real life, tie it into practice, put it put it into it like what we call a clinical experience. Once you can do that, and because what the clinical experience does is it reinforces the knowledge. So you have the information, but once you put a face to it, once you put an experience to it, it makes much more sense, and it's easy to rep- easier to replicate. Whereas if all you needed someone to do is regurgitate one piece of information 
it disappears out of the head really, really fast. Um, and so I think the, the education, as, as sort of as it was before, was still very much about here is a book, memorize it, vomit it back out at me. Whereas now I think there's there's hopefully a, a much greater move towards a more practical kind of learning. I am surprised though that for such a practical, for being a trade, being a very practical industry, mm. that they didn't apply that kind of philosophy either. It was weird. And like I, that's what, and I, I guess that was where I, I thought I would think, a lot of the guys were just like, oh, well, you know, let's just do it. Let's just learn how to do it the old way. I'm like, no, this is stupid. <laughs> this is a complete waste of time. I'm never going to do it. And, that, and then I think back to school, I remember doing maths at school and going i am never gonna do this in my life yeah and that and i guess you're right it was the same sort of thing and then obviously Tafe, you said you mentioned the older teachers trade industry it obviously a very male driven industry mm. and males tend to have you know a lot of pride mm-hmm. um and an older male teacher who learned i did it this way back in my day that attitude of I learned how to do it like this. You need to learn how to do this. No fancy nail gun is going to show you the feel for a hammer and a nail. It's that's what it was like. And I just, you know, rolling my eyes. Like my eyes were just constantly rolled in the back of my head. Like, just if there's a nail gun for it, why wouldn't we make it easier, more efficient, quicker? I just, it just seems really stupid to me. Mm. So I guess yeah, that was <laughs> very good correlation to back to school though. That was kind of what it was like. Um, so as you stayed you, after you finished your apprenticeship, you mm. were, uh, worked as a carpenter for what? Well, so it was seven years with this one guy. Yeah, so I kind of did three years of my apprenticeship, and then was there for three or four years mm. after as a you know on wages, and then as a contractor for a little bit. I then started my own business, um, just me, me myself, and I um, doing small jobs, um, maintenance work, that sort of stuff. Uh, I did that for about two and a half years, maybe three years. It was the worst three years of my life. Um, <laughs> Why was that? Well, one thing like, again, back to TAFE, it would have been great for them to prep me for what running a business was like because mm-hmm. um, they tell you how to do everything in the world of carpentry, but, you know, they don't explain one. And same with school. Like, no one ever told me much about tax. Yeah. You know, I'm lucky, you know, my dad's a, you know, he ran a business for a long time, so he had an idea, but I didn't. And that was kind of the hardest part. Trying to get people to pay you is an absolute nightmare. I spent more of my time chasing people for money and people saying to me, oh, no, there's there's a problem. And it's like, well, hold on a sec. I finished there a month ago and I invoiced you a month ago and I've been chasing you for three weeks and you now now you've got a problem. Mm-hmm. Like, where was the problem three weeks? Why didn't you tell me straight away I could have fixed it and then could have been resolved? Mm-hmm. And you'd go there and the, the problem is just a joke and you'd have to... You, but you'd do it because a, a part of running a business is making sure that they give you a positive, you know, a, a positive response. And if someone asks them, they go, yeah, James was great. That's what you want. But that was the hardest part of it. And I guess I learned that some people aren't cut out for that. And I'm certainly someone who wasn't. I, I felt frustrated and stressed. And then the way I dealt with stress at that point in my life was to put my head in the sand and, you know, not try, not try and care about it, mm. um, which meant that the business didn't go very well in the end. And shutting it down was probably one of the best days of my life. I, I can remember just the pure, when I finally finished paying the debts off I owed for it and took the last bit of money out of my business and, started working you know full-time the next day i was like just the relief i felt was <laughs> incredible knowing i was gonna get paid every fortnight every month whatever it was with the company but you know just knowing having that you know that security was a was a lot better and, and a lot more suited me I, I know some people do a great job at it but i was not one of those people sorry just I, i'm really fascinated by the, by the parallels between your industry and my industry because we have mm. the same, exact same problem so no one you get through medical school and that's fine like medical school is a bit broader uh, hospital training fine but once you get to gp gp is very much a a private business industry yes it is healthcare fine but it's not publicly supported necessarily the yeah. you know you, you you have you get paid by medicare but medicare don't pay you a salary you have to know how to use the system to the best of your ability appropriately of course you're not trying to rot the system but you're trying to just um, figure out how do I pay my employees how do I make sure I calculate my taxes do I hire people as a contractor or as an employee or an associate like there's all these little details that no one ever really spends time teaching you and while the college, they're the sort of the governing body of GPs, while they offer business courses, it's after the fact. So it's not during, it's not before you have to jump into it. It's like once you're a GP or once you're out there in the contract world, this is, you know, they, they, they give you these courses and you think this should really be incorporated into the everyday stuff. They should know this while they're still being supported, while yep. they're um, still being protected by the fact that they are a student. That way, by the time they get to the point where they need to think about it, then they can apply it with not complete guaranteed certainty, but at least some base knowledge about how to approach it with minimal risk or 
by minimizing the amount of mistakes they make. It's insane. It's insane that they don't. That it's it's such a logical, practical association that no, uh, again within GP or trade, from the sounds of it, no one seems to be drawing the link to. No, and then the things like insurances, mm-hmm. public liability. Like I remember thinking, someone saying, you know, if you want to work for us, you got to have public liability. What public liability? So I go and look it up, and I'm like. Oh, so basically, if I build something that collapses and kills somebody or destroys another building, that's what protects me. Mm. And that's just, just another cost you add on. There's another cost. Um, insurance for your tools. What if one day, like I was unlucky enough that one night I came out to my car and all my tools were gone. Mm. Now, I was only early on in my career at that point. I was still an apprentice. So it wasn't a ton of school of, of tools. But then I thought, okay, well, I need to look into tool insurance. And then tool insurance was up to $150 a month. Mm-hmm. And... There's no guarantee your tools are ever going to get stolen again. Hopefully, they don't. But if you were, if you weren't running your own business, you pulled out to your car in the morning and all your tools were gone, you're effectively, your business is at a standstill. You mm. cannot do anything until you go and get it all again. So, all that sort of stuff, you know, weighing up that thing and that pressure and then all of a sudden, all those costs, you know, your, your outlay, your overheads are all there and then you're working out, okay, I've got to, I've got to earn this much a month, no worries, that, that seems doable and then this on top and, and then one person decides not to pay you and there's really no protection for you mm. because it just becomes a he said, she said situation whereas, oh no, I didn't want it like that and he did it like that where my argument would be, well, hold on, this is what they asked me to do, I did it and now they're not paying me and that could be, you know, a three or $4,000 thing that to the person you're doing it for it might not be a lot of money but that would be enough that you wouldn't have enough to pay bills that month and mm. then you're kind of falling behind and the next month you've got to make it up and that sort of thing, how to manage that, how to manage getting people to pay you. Contracts, I didn't think you, I should have probably been getting everyone I did work for to sign a contract. Mm. But a lot of these things were, were a handshake deal. You went there, you quoted, they shook your hand, you gave them a bit of paper with a quote and they said, yeah, happy with that, go ahead. And then afterwards, they, the, you know, you learned how bad people can be in that mm. time. Over those couple of years, I really learned that people will do anything um, if it benefits them at times. There's also some really great people that never had a problem, but there was a lot more of the other way, which really shocked me. A lot more people that were happy to just not pay you um, to the point where you'd be knocking at their door trying to confront them saying, hey, this is a bit unfair. Mm. And they just like almost laugh in your face and shut the door. Like, what are you going to do about it sort of thing? It's like the the bullies of the world. And they were people that would then pull out in their BMWs and drive them up the street and you're Mm. like... Yeah, you you clearly you're clearly doing it tough. You, you can't <laughs> afford to pay me my five hundred dollars for the work I legitimately did. You know what I mean? And that's where that's what I hated about it. it the work I, I quite enjoyed, but I was just I, I wasn't cut out for that sort of style. Yeah, you know, that work work lifestyle, I guess. So, what made you decide to leave? I guess the comfort of of being an employee to start your own business. Um, I wanted to, as everyone wanted to be. I wanted to be my own boss. Mm. I wanted to have control of my life. I wanted to do the jobs I wanted to do. I wanted to have no one telling me what to do. I wanted to be able to finish early some days and do what I got to do. That, you know, that, sort, that sort of dream, that was what it was, you know. Um, and money. Mm. I think that's what 100%. I think I've, I've always been told that you should never leave a job unless it's a better opportunity to increase your skills or move up somewhere or earn more money. They're, they're the two key things. And at that point, you know, I was out of my time. I was with someone I did my apprenticeship with which is a hard you know, thing to shrug. You're always going to be the apprentice to that person in some ways. Um, and if they're a small company, you kind of hit a level where you can earn as much as you can earn for that company because then it becomes they're going to lose money paying you more because they may as well get you know, another apprentice in and try and do it that way. And that's how the industry works. So basically, the industry works is there's probably two... You know, most domestic building companies have kind of two or three core carpenters depending on the size of the business and then they just roll apprentices through. So every four years, the apprentice might hang around a little bit after and then he'll shoot off and go somewhere else and start his own career elsewhere and then they roll in the other apprentice and that's kind of how it works. Um, and they get them to do the you know the manual labor and that sort of stuff and that's how they learn. Um, but yeah, that, that, the, the thing for me was I wanted to earn more money and I thought, you know, I could earn, if I get three jobs like if I work three days a week for myself I'm going to earn what I'm earning in you know five or six days a week for um, you know for this guy so why don't I you know I can find three days a week of work that's not too hard and Mm. it wasn't it was just that was the trap of you get those three days a week and then all of a sudden someone doesn't pay you and that money's gone you know Mm. what I mean that's where it was hard but that was that was my motivation I wanted to be my own boss I wanted to be that tradie that could, you know, go home at three because I'd finished my job and not stress. And but it was a lot more stress than I thought I'd ever. <laughs> it was a lot more than I thought it was going to be. 
And I think that is it is an interesting myth that is perpetuated. That, that, that exact phrase, be your own boss, is there's this idealism to it, which is um, fascinating and also kind of ridiculous because it doesn't, it doesn't encompass, or as you've just described, all the stress and the worry. And sure, you might have more money coming in, but the amount of work you had to put into make, getting that money through is so much harder. Um, so when I, when I went out on my own, so after, after you, um, finish your GP training, you, I think 99% of the time you get employed as a contractor. So Mm -hmm. a handful of organizations employ you as an employee doctor. So you get paid, um, you might get paid your billings, but you get, you know, super and you, you get your PAYG and all that stuff. And most people as a contractor. So all of a sudden you dive into this world of, okay, should I be my own company? How does it work for tax things? What can I write off? Um, what does that mean about fees? What should I be monitoring? Um, all these, all these business concepts, and you you really struggle. And you know, if you work in an industry where you get paid enough, where you can afford your own accountant, great. But not everyone can, and no. you know, um, so it is a whole nother knowledge set that you just don't have. And I'm grateful that yes, I work in an industry where I could earn enough money to afford an accountant. Because if I did have an accountant, dear God, I would be so lost. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, you know, or even even knowing the other thing was also knowing what was fair. So not so in in GP you get in most places you get paid a percentage, but unless you go and look for the information, you don't know what an average percentage or what a fair percentage is. Yeah, you just kind of go, oh, this seems all right. Yeah, okay, I'll deal with it. When you could be being vastly underpaid, or one of the one of the biggest traps which I find both hilarious and infuriating is the idea of percentage super. So if you don't get paid as a contractor, if you get paid as an employee, they'll say, okay, we'll hire you as an employee um, at sixty percent. Now sixty percent sounds great, unless the super is not on top of that. In most cases, it should be, but in some cases, they'd be like that includes your super. So you're actually only being paid fifty one percent, which is much, much, much lower than the national average. Um, and but again, no one teaches you this. No one teaches you to look for the traps. You just have to hope that you have a business savvy friend or yeah. or, or, a, or a, te- a teacher or supervisor who just happens to know these things who will teach you. But there's no universal. Um, there's the universal education uh, process where where they're trying to teach you this is a practical skill associated with your industry. You need to know, it. and I, I find it insane. Yeah, and I think the you know the, the government take advantage of that as well at times. Um, the ATO, all those sorts of places, they they certainly prey. In my mind, they they prey on the people who don't understand that. Mm. Um, although I never had any massive issues with that stuff because I said I had someone to help me in that regard. But I know a lot of other guys I worked with and for have had massive issues with that sort of stuff, not understanding, you know, you mentioned pay, pay, pay as you go. Um, that There were guys that didn't know that. So mm. for years, they weren't doing it. And then all of a sudden, they get a bill for four years of work mm. for their tax. Mm. And you imagine the shock on their face. That was almost <laughs> the end of their business because how am I going to find this money? Yeah. Um, and my argument always was, yes, they should be paying the tax. That's not the issue. The issue is... Yeah, they probably could have been contacted a little bit earlier and explained that. Hey, Indeed. you know, you need to pay. You've been two months and you haven't paid your tax. Do you understand you need to? Mm. Oh, no, I don't. Okay, well, why don't you come in and sit down with us and we'll help you with that. The, the government don't do that. They just kind of go, yep, let them go. Let's let them rack up this massive bill. We'll whack them with fines. We'll whack them with interest. And then we'll we'll let them cry about it later and say, sorry, it's your own responsibility as a business owner. Mm. Um, I think there could be more from a government standpoint in helping you know young tradesmen who want to become businessmen because we need them, mm. helping them kind of develop and, and understand what they what their requirements are as a company or a business. And I do find on a somewhat psychological point of view that's particularly relevant because it is quite I found it it's quite a common belief within trade particularly the idea of being your own boss. I, mm. I think it's often it comes from this idea that because um, up until fairly recently, the education system was very um, confined. It was the idea that everyone had to finish school. That was just the end of it. And I, mm-hmm. I hear, like, I agree with you that having the VC in your back pocket um, is useful. It, it may not be useful to you immediately, but it may become useful later. And just having it there and just slogging it out, if you can, like if you're capable of it, um, it could be really valuable. But 
what um what I find is that a lot of them find school to be uh, constricting, and and so their their immediate motivation is I don't want to keep being in an environment where I'm being told what to do. Yeah. So then then comes the myth of be your own boss. It's appealing, the idea of freedom of choice, the idea mm-hmm. of having control and and not being in that kind of restrained environment. All of a sudden, it's like oh, that's amazing. Except again, as we're saying, that that no one, they're not equipping them with the the unique skills that comes with being your own boss, and all of a sudden they get thrown into the situation where they have to. They, they were thrown in the deep end. Yep. Some obviously survive. Some figure it out, which is great and good on them. Um, and some of them, maybe it is about the motivation. Like they get the relevance and so it sticks in their head better. But yeah, for a lot of people, it just becomes too hard. Yeah, 100%. Uh, yeah, there's and there's no support for it. And then the, the idea of being your own boss is, is such a load of crap. Because mm. you know what? When I worked for myself, I, I answered to my clients. Because mm-hmm. tell you what, if they weren't happy with you, you weren't earning any money. Mm-hmm. So that was similar to having a boss. If your boss wasn't happy with you, he was going to either let you go or wouldn't pay you. Yeah. So there was there was always a boss. You've all you're always going to have someone you're answering to. Yes, it might be every now and again you can say, you know what, I'm not working today. But do you know when you work for yourself, you don't get paid if you don't work that day. There's no one paying your bills. If you have a sick day working for a company, you still get paid. Mm-hmm. You get paid the same all the time as long as you're not doing it too often. Yes. But that's the thing, like you're always going to have someone to answer to or you don't earn any money. <laughs> they, you know, and, that, and that's what it's all about really in the scheme of things. Exactly. Yeah. Because it was the, point, the point of having a job is to earn money to support the other things in your life. 100%. Mm. Yeah. So after you, uh, after you closed up your, your shop, what, uh, what did you do next? I went into supervising, so construction supervising. I worked for a volume builder um, for a little over a year. I did kind of high-end carpentry when I was a carpenter. Um, which was, you know, more expensive stuff, you know, inner city mansions, that sort of stuff when I worked as a carpenter. And going to volume building is is the exact opposite end of the scale. It's certainly not a bad industry. It's just very different. It's very get it done quickly, get it done on, you know, get on time and get it done to standard, nothing more, nothing less. Mm. Um, so I did that for a couple of years, which was a really good experience. Uh, and then I, I'm currently now working for an insurance builder, which is a, a bit of a change in scenery as a, a contract manager so basically I, I do evaluations on damages to people's homes after an assurance event and whether it's claimable or not claimable under their policy and then help with the repairs of the job um, with the tradesmen and, and basically manage relationships with tradesmen and um, keeping them employed I'm basically their port of call between the company the client and um, the tradesman I'm that, that that middle ground between everyone that kind of does the on-site representative and manages it so let's go back to the to the supervisor role for a second. So firstly, for those who don't know, what is a volume builder? A volume builder is someone who builds a high volume of homes. So there, there's heaps of them that out in the green fields, they call it in the trade industry out in, you know, Clyde, Cranbourne, those areas if you're in Melbourne. Um, they might build up to, you know, 1,500 homes a year, that sort of thing. They're the cheaper end of homes and they're built at a very high volume, which means they can buy things at a high, high amount of stock. So they get things a lot cheaper. So... You can obviously build a home for a lot cheaper, but the quality is going to be nowhere near as a as a high end home. Um, and and as I understand it, also the other thing is often with volume builders, there are restrictions on the floor plans and the design of the home as well. Uh, as yeah. opposed, you can't like the the option to personalize is a lot less be, precisely because they want to be on schedule and maintain the volume. Would that be accurate? Yeah, hundred percent. You can't just have people deciding what they want. You give there's probably ten homes to pick from at the company, all varying in size, size, shape. You can then add certain things. So say you want a, a butler's pantry or you want an ensuite, you want an extra bathroom, stuff like that. You can add alfresco areas, all that sort of thing, but it's all very, this is what you're starting with. And if you want to add, it's more, 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 more and adds on top. Um, so most of the houses you're doing, I said in, in the year or so I was there, I did a lot of homes um, and they were all relatively the same, mm-hmm. um, which was fine. And don't get me wrong, people get a really good home out of it. It's a very good first home for a good price. They, th- there's nothing wrong with the houses. It's just not what I was used to doing, mm. um, which certainly didn't make it better or worse. It just wasn't something I'd done before, which was where I kind of struggled with, with that element of it. And, you know, being, again, being a first-time supervisor, um, you know, the organization and time management skills are something that as a tradesman you never really have because you normally rock up, you know what you're meant to be doing, you know how long you've got to do it and you do it. Whereas being thrown, here's 15, 20 houses to manage, um, have fun. Here's the days you should be doing it. Here's how quickly you should be building them. Here's how your schedule should work. Go manage. And it's like, oh, so what? I just do what I want. And it's like, yeah, 
you turn up when you want, you leave when you want, but you better make sure everything runs perfect. Because if it doesn't, then we're going to be asking, what are you doing? So do they not even give you any sort of managerial training? They do, yes. Yeah. But it's it's a lot of it is left to you know, yourself to manage. And a lot of that is also left to yourself to be motivated to manage yourself as well. Mm. Um, you know, it'd be very easy to be leaving early all the time and doing all that, you know, going home early, starting late, that sort of thing. But if you do, it catches up with you really quickly. Mm. Um, but, and a lot of guys it does, but that that's a hard, I, I never realized how hard it was to motivate yourself when you've got no one motivating you. <laughs> it, it's, it's really difficult when there's no one kind of going, you know, I need you to do this. When it's just yourself, mm. it's very easy to let yourself down, I find. It, it's a lot harder to let other... Or for me anyway, I find it really hard to let other people down. I mm. really do. But letting myself down, I actually find quite easy. It's a, <laughs> it's a real problem. I need to actually have a bit more respect for myself at times. But letting myself down, I can do all the time and walk away going, ah, oh, it's only me. doesn't matter. But anyone else, I'm like, oh, no, I don't want to let them down. Which is, you know, it's it's not... that. That's where guys can get in a hole with that sort of job is... You let it, you're left a lot to yourself and if you can't motivate yourself and find that you know that level of respect for yourself to do the right thing then that's where you can get in a hole very quickly in that industry um, you know so, so a value and um, values are particularly important I think in, in any industry really knowing what's important to you and I guess it's very different when when it's, when it's yourself you what you end up doing is you, you can you look at yourself uh, in the grander picture. So you kind of say, all right, this thing, the, the idea of um, uh, organizing the work may not be your biggest priority at that moment. So you can kind of go, eh, I don't really mind. But when you're trying to manage other people, all you know is that one thing. So mm. you just kind of assume, all right, because this is my priority, because this is what I my job is, this is what I've been told to do. I managing for you is my, is my priority because because that, that's the one thing I know that I need to do for you that makes your life better to some degree whereas for yourself you know you've got a list of maybe 10 priorities 10 values that you have to try and <clears throat> prioritize and reorganize and it is really easy to just kind of go eh, eh, that one's not that important to me i'll just kind of let it go <laughs> yeah 100 percent. and the other hard thing is yeah you don't want to let people down but also like it, the trade industry is a really hard industry um it's really demanding people that you're building houses for or doing work for a lot of the time have no idea what you're doing. So they're mm. also, when they're asking you questions or getting frustrated with you, a lot of tradesmen take that as a, God, this person, you know, they're busting me, you know, like, hackling me on price and asking me. It's genuinely because they don't get it and they mm. don't understand what things cost. And I learned a lot, you know, over the last couple of years about having kind of empathy for people in that regard that getting frustrated with someone and, you know, ruling with the iron fist, even if it's your tradesmen or, the, or you know, your, your clients, trying to be that, you know, I know what's going on, just listen to me. Mm. It doesn't work because the world is very educated now. It's very easy to be educated and it's very easy to be led to the wrong sort of education on something on the internet and that sort of stuff. You Mm. can Google almost anything now and think you know how it works. So I I, I gained some empathy in the regard of, you know, if I'm building a house for someone and and they've never built a house before and they don't know how to do it, Mm. I need to actually take them on that journey a little bit too and, and help them almost try and teach them this is how it works and this is why it costs you so much because of this. And they, most of the time, 95% of the time, they walk away going, oh, that makes sense. That's why, that's why it costs so much. I said, yeah, because it's not just the tradie rocking up. You've got to have insurance as work cover. He's got to have his ute, his, his, his office girl back who's running the, you know, running the system back in the office. Someone's got to pay her. She doesn't earn money sitting in the office. It's all earned out here on site. That's why guys cost so much. Mm. Once you kind of start explaining that to people, they get it. But a lot of guys... And it's, you know, that older generation of tradesmen again that come in and go, oh, it doesn't matter. I, I know what I'm bloody doing. Just let me do my job. Mm. Don't, don't ask me dumb questions because to you, yeah, they're dumb questions. But yeah. to them, they have zero idea. Like they, they just want to know. That's something I've learned, you know, don't, don't be too hard on your trades. Like if they let you down then, and you have to tell, you know, if they're constantly letting you down, then that's something you can't put up with. But if things happen and they're people too and don't try and treat them like people, not like, carpenter number one and carpenter number three you know they're they're jake and michael and they've got a family and he's got he's got a nice dog that he loves he loves his dog and he brings him to work like try and see the people more than and that's where i i get more joy out of my job when i deal with the person not you know the job they're doing i Mm. think if you can create those relationships i've found that my job's got a lot better 
when you've got good relationships with the people around you, which I guess works in every vein of life. Mm. As yeah, absolutely, and like certainly uh, again, it, the parallels between GP are fascinating because we call it the paternalistic model. The idea that um, you know the uh, people in a certain position of authority assume that because they have the expertise, they have the right to dictate what happens, um, and they should trust. And once again, if we if we look back a generation, that's just what they were used to. They were, they just assumed that authorities, they, you know, they had experts and authorities and everyone just trusted their authorities and experts, but that's no longer the case anymore for various reasons. Again, mm. the, the, um, the, spread of knowledge and then ease of access of knowledge as well as obviously a number of betrayals in various industries um so i agree entirely i agree that really being able to in involve a, an individual so client or patient in my case um in the care and the management and the choices it, it keeping them informed is, is half the job. It, it eases a lot of the stress because for most people, the stress is in the not knowing. When they don't understand something, all they see is what is their perspective. They're looking at it through their own lens. They're looking yep. at it from a cost perspective or a time perspective, the inconvenience to them or their family or whatever it may be. But if you can involve them in the process and say, well, there are certain things we can't help, but there are certain things we can help by being more informed and by collaborating with them more, you get a lot more understanding. And then the outcome might still end up being exactly the same. Then the client might still go, oh, okay, well, then you just do what you do. It's fine. You've explained it to me. I get it now. Fantastic. Um, but if you don't spend that time, you, you really it really impacts on the relationship you have. Yeah, I agree. And I'm sure you know as a GP, how many times you had someone come in and go, oh, I've, I've got this. Mm. And you're like, well, hold on a second. <laughs> I know you've Googled it and you think you know everything, but let me just check you. You know yeah. what I mean? That's the same as car. It's a, it's a very different thing. But you're going, oh, yeah. Why is this beam like this? Yeah. And the attitude, my response would be, oh, I'll explain to you why, because this is where the load is. We're going to pick it up here and pick it up here instead of going, oh, don't worry about it. Yeah. Right? Like, if you just explain, and you know what? Half the time when you start explaining it, it goes so over their head that they just go, they, you know, they they go blank and go, oh yeah, cool. Sounds like you know what's going on. You're like, yeah, right. And they, and they leave you alone, and then because you've tried, and they they people, I think people really appreciate that. I think the, the other part of it as well is also I think people appreciate the, they appreciate seeing the inner workings of it. You know, it's like it's like um, looking on the insides of a clock. You don't really care about how it works, but just knowing that it is complicated and that you may not understand it, but that someone does understand it, yeah. it makes you feel better. Whereas if all you're hearing is someone telling you an instruction and you don't see how they came to that conclusion. Um, then you, you kind of like, but I have my own process. Why, you know, does our process match? I don't know. We have, we've come to the, I thought, I think we're both seeing the same amount of information, but we're actually having different outcomes. Why did that happen? Yeah. So I, I, I do that a lot with, with my patients. I explain, I'll say, look, this is, this is what I think should happen. And this is the reason why I think it should happen. You can agree or disagree. It's up to you, but um, this is so you understand my process. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I they, they do this, um, uh, they teach this thing in GP called uh, patient negotiation. So the idea that even if a doctor has the expertise to make the decision, in your, what you're meant to do is you're meant to explain it to the patient and get them involved and say, well, what would you like to do? What is the thing that suits your sensibility? What is the thing that uh, eases your concern the best? And I find that 95% of the time, if you explain yourself properly, they'll be like, yeah, that makes sense. You do what you do. And they, they, they trust you much better yeah. if you spend the time to actually get them in, involved and, and explain your thinking, then, yep. then they, they, they're much more willing to just let you do your thing. And I find that 5% that don't, we're going to have that problem anyway. Exactly. So by explaining it and doing it that way is you've gained that 95% that you, you know you're going to get if you do it that way. Mm. But that 5%, you're always going to get that percentage of people that even if you explain it perfectly, don't care and are still going to be trouble and, and be hard work. Yeah. But if you do it the right way all the time, you'll never get any more than that 5%. That 95% of people that are good, that start good, mm. won't turn because you're doing the right thing by them. I think that's something, yeah, you can make, there's, you can, you can, there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of stress you can add to yourself by not, you know, people go, oh, you know, at work, oh, I'm so stressed. I've got this, this bad client. Why are they bad? Well, I was meant to meet them and I couldn't. I'm like, well, hold on. Did you tell them? No, they rocked up and then I wasn't there. And I'm like, well, there's strike one. <laughs> were they annoyed then? No, they were okay then. It was then when the next day I was late. And I'm like, oh, there's the strike two. They were probably like, he didn't rock up yesterday. Now he's late today. And then I gave them bad news. And I'm like, there's strike three. <laughs> so do you reckon if you'd rocked up the first day you were supposed to on time, delivered the bad news? Yeah, they probably would have been a bit frustrated about it. But 
probably would have been in a better state to be a bit more understanding. Mm. And like, oh yeah. <laughs> like that's how you get that five percent and turn it into fifty percent mm. by doing little and that's little things, just little and just honest mistakes. But if you're doing it all the time, it can make you know your life really hard. Mm. Yeah. What else about your carpentry time uh, helped uh, sort of informed you uh, about your work as a supervisor? I think supervisors that don't that aren't tradesmen, there are a lot of them that kind of we call them the uni supervisors um, <laughs> that go and do their, their, their building degrees and stuff, that sort of stuff, which is a perfectly fine way to go about it. They lack that kind of on site knowledge, and you know, I come in on site. If there's a carpenter working there, I've done what he's done, and I know exactly what he's doing. And there's also, the other side of it is that the tradesmen, as I said before, it's a male-dominated industry. It's a very blokey industry, uh, very pride industry. When I rock up and go, oh, so what were you doing before? I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a chippy by trade, which I feel I say all the time. <laughs> when you say I'm a chippy by trade or if you're you know, a plumber, electrician, I, you know, the look on the guy's face is like, yeah, all right. You're all good. <laughs> if you, if I, I, I can't imagine what result you get. Oh, no, I, I'm not a tradesman. I actually went to uni. These tradesmen, whether they show you or not, and some of them will, will just be like, oh, okay. Whereas others will be like, oh, yeah, that's cool. And then you know in the back of their mind, they're going, oh, God, this guy's got, or girl's got no idea. <laughs> it's just That's just the industry. And that, it's slowly getting away from that. I said, as we, you know, the industry is growing and becoming very different over the past decade, certainly. But there's certain that that's that stigma of, no, uh, you went to uni, you don't know anything because you you learned it from a book, not from on site. Mm. So that's where my carpentry definitely helps me is you get that, you know, whether you're a good carpenter or not, just saying that you are one, you get that instant respect up front. Mm. Now you can lose it really quickly if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're full of crap and you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> but if you, if, when you walk and go, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a chippy by trade, they're like, oh, thank heavens you're here, James. Like, Thanks, thanks for being here, mate. Like, oh God, it's it's awesome. It's like, oh wow, okay, instant respect. Whereas if you're not, it can go the other way pretty quick too. That's a that's a human psychology thing, though. So the I, I don't know if you've ever experienced this personally, but the amount of people who, um, you know, so 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 with my experience in mental health, I often give people advice about how to manage their emotions and stuff. But one of the, some of the times I get this response where they're like, "You don't understand. You've never been through it. You can't possibly, get, you know, you can't possibly be able to help me." Um, but if someone who's been through it gave them the exact same advice, they're much more likely to accept it. Yep. And what that shows is that it's not about the information. It doesn't matter whether you're right. It's, it's not the communicator. It's the receiver. It's the person deciding the, to put up the barrier. Isn't that the whole point of like, you know, if you're an alcoholic, you go to Alcohol Anonymous. So you can talk to people that have been through it. Yeah. Like I'm sure a doctor can tell you all the things that the people are telling you at those sorts of things, but it's about someone who's been through it, you know, telling you how they did it mm. um i think yeah that's 100 percent. that's why those things exist yeah and and don't get me wrong i, I wouldn't i wouldn't begrudge someone for for accessing those side of services because it mm. really is quite useful i guess yeah. it's it's the problem where if they if they come to you for, to seek help and they reject it but they don't seek it elsewhere mm. um that's when it becomes problematic because if you have a problem that you want to solve you you really need to want to solve it because if you're not going to solve it, if you're not going to, um, if you have, you know, if there's a worksite problem and they're just like, I don't want to listen to this guy, even if he's saying all the right things, I don't want to listen to it. I'm just going to let things fall apart. That doesn't help anyone. It, it, it you don't, you don't. The project doesn't move forward unless you start making changes. If something is wrong, and so if you, if as as humans, we put up automatic barriers to to good advice or to um, to other people. We're only disservicing ourselves. We're not disservicing anyone else. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, I was I was interested. I was having a conversation with someone yesterday about um, different different states of Australia. Uh, but, well, actually, well, it seems to be a Victorian thing, particularly about how you introduce yourself, or or how, how when you're meeting a new person, what are the questions they often ask? And some a number of people have commented that in Victoria. It seems to matter what school you go to. So one of the first questions that they'll ask is like, "Oh, hi, how you go?" Uh, was well, either school or job. Yeah. So what is what kind of work do you do? What school did you go to? Um, and then we com it, comparing that to uh, say like Europe, it, particularly in a, like say like Greece and Italy. One of the first questions will be, "Where are you from?" 
like and they don't mean what country they mean like what village what what region because yeah. for some reason that is it's almost like a um and not, not an icebreaker but it's sort of like a judgment question it's sort of like 100%. how much am i going to get along with you if you have a job as um if, if you know I, i'm if i'm a doctor and i have a, i meet someone who is a musician i might be kind of vaguely fascinated but the likelihood we're going to have the same experiences and the same kind of um worldview is less not again we could still be the exact same person with different jobs but it's fascinating how we we have these qualifying questions and 100%. so it's and i think it's a you're right it's a 100 a judgment thing it's you want to i think people try to instantly just compare themselves against the other person mm. always that's the first thing you and it comes kind of naturally which is you know human nature i guess but first thing you want to think is all right how do i rank against this person what do you do for a job oh i'm the head of surgery at the alfred hospital i'm like oh god <laughs> <laughs> this guy's so smart and earns so much more money than me. And that's instantly what you think. You're like, oh God, all right. Do you like footy? Yeah, yeah. I like footy. Me too. And then you know what? <laughs> you instantly come back to the same level then because you yeah. found something, you found common ground. So it's not always about kind of trying to make it you're better than someone or worse than someone. It's from trying to find, you might say, do you like footy? And they're like, no, nah, I don't like sport. And then you're like, oh God, yeah. this is going to be a long di- Thanks wife for bringing me along for this couple's dinner. This is going to be a ripper night. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. about trying to find that common ground. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, all right. So, so the insurance game. So why did you move from being a supervisor to entering into insurance? I don't really have a good answer. I kind of, I w- wanted something different mm. and it wasn't really the industry of the insurance industry that, that appealed to me. It was the job that appealed to me. And now that I'm doing, I've been doing it for you know, six months now. I'm really, really glad I did it. I actually, it really suits me. Uh, I feel like the insurance industry, you're dealing with people from a client point of view or the insured point of view. They're people that don't want to do this works to their house a lot of the time. A lot of the time they've had a leak, you know, and they've got a big hole in their ceiling because the roof leaked and wrecked their ceiling. So you're there it sounds stupid, but I feel like you're helping people more. Mm. You're not just working with some rich guy who's just built this nice house and then a year later decides he wants a new kitchen because he can afford it and mm. it's outdated, which happens. Yeah. So there's something I feel like it sounds silly, but I feel like you can you might go to work for like a really old lady that's you know been insured by RACB for sixty years and she's got this little bit of problem and you know RACB go no she hasn't got any excess just just do it for her and you like you like you really want to take care of this person because they're old and they're really nice and. You know, and there's, there's also the, the other side of it. They're not very nice, but it, it's a bit more of, yeah, I, f- I feel like I'm helping people more in some weird way because it's not it's not planned work a lot of the time. It's work that they don't, they didn't want to be doing. Mm. So that's what I like. And it's also a lot more about building. It's a lot more about, because the work's easier. A lot of my jobs are, there's a plaster ceiling with a hole in it. We've got to patch it with plaster and then paint it. That, mm. That's what a lot of the work is. Um it's a lot easier work to manage the, you know, the, the construction side of it. It's not complicated. A lot of the tradesmen are, are very, very capable to do it and don't have any issue. You don't need to hold their hand and watch what they're doing, which I enjoy. So it's more about building a relationship with the tradesmen, you know, getting them to turn up at the right time and do so that, and managing that sort of thing than sitting on site going, is he hammering that in properly? Is he, is he, is he holding his screwdriver properly? Is he doing this properly? Is he doing it right, right to plan? It's, it's, I enjoy that more. It's more about the people than about the work, which I like. Yeah, and it certainly sounds like your career has slowly evolved away from the technicalities of being a, a, a carpenter and into that kind of, yeah, the pe- the relationship management kind of area. I get more out of people than I get out of the job. Like, a lot of carpenters, they, 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 they love being carpenters and they finish a job and they, they, you, know, you see where they stand back and look at it and they're so proud. They're so proud of themselves. I don't get that feeling from doing carpentry. I never have and I don't think I ever will. I've just renovated my house and my house is really nice and I like it and I did it myself. But I don't walk into my house every day and go, you did this. How good are you? I don't. I've never felt that motivation. Mm. What I feel motivation is when my wife brings her friends over and goes, oh yeah, my husband did this. How nice does it look? Because she's happy. Mm. That gives me that makes me feel better. Or when a tradesman finishes his job and gets paid and goes, you know, there might have been an issue and it's, Hey, thanks a lot, James. You really helped me on this one. And, you know, I've, the job looks great and I've got paid. And, you know, it's there was a problem, but you helped me with it. I get more out of that than I get out of looking back at a timber wall I've built. And that's not belittling that. I just, I just mm. feel, I just, that's how I'm motivated. Yeah. So. I mean, obviously your your time in carpentry uh, has given you a lot of knowledge about the building industry and mm. about these skills. But, I mean, do you ever regret doing it? No. No, not at all. Like I said, uh, no, nah, 
Ne- never. I, my carpentry career was great. I liked it. I got paid to earn a trade. That's something I can never, ever lose now. Mm. I'll always... I said, and the, the, the one thing I come back to is if I, I've just bought a new house and renovated it, I bought a really dump of a house and did a full renovation on it. I can do that again. Mm. And you make a lot of money doing that. And that's a skill I'll, I'll never lose. I'll never lose that ability. So I certainly don't regret it. And anyone who wants to be a tradesman... Um, I said a lot of people probably didn't expect me to be a tradesman when I was growing up. I was a bit of a joker, you know, didn't really concentrate on much, you know, wasn't a great student. When I wanted to be, I could be, but wasn't, you know, if you ask people from my school, I guarantee a lot of the teachers in my school think that I'd be n- nothing now. Because <laughs> um, just, I just didn't care. And a lot of people didn't think I'd end up being a tradesman, but it's something I did and I, I don't regret it in any way. It's a skill set I'll never lose. It's like, like riding a bike. I'll never lose how to do it. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's something up your sleeve always and I can always go back and be a carpenter. True. Yeah. Would you ever? I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. It's just not me now. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I do it every now and again. I help, helped my mate. He was He's trying to sell his house now. He wanted me to help him build a deck and I went around for the day yesterday and it was really enjoyable. It was sunny. It was nice and, you know, I built the deck and it was good and, you know, it was with a couple of other guys that were like, oh, God, you know what you're doing. And that said, felt good because they were like, I was helping them do it. So they were like, oh, this is, you know, this is cool. This is, I don't do this ever. But then, you know, I wouldn't want to roll up and go back to it today. Mm. That's, that's just not, not, not what I want to do anymore. Um, I, I want to start talking a little bit about your, your um, broadcasting career. But before mm. we move on to that, for anyone thinking about entering a trade, what would you want them to know that you would have wanted to know when you started? Um, the first year, you're not a tradesman, maybe two years. You're there, you'll be a glorified laborer and you're there to do the hard stuff. So when you're there doing that, do the hard stuff and it will gain you a lot of respect down the track when it comes to other stuff. That's my only thing. It's, it's, you, you're not going to, if you're going to be a carpenter, you're not rolling in to start framing up houses and doing the cool stuff straight away, doing decks and that. You're there to shovel and clean up and do that sort of stuff. Embrace it work really hard at it because then you'll earn the respect of the other guys and then when it's your turn to be that guy, you'll, you'll have their respect. You won't have to earn it later. Cool. Um, all right. So, you obviously have a bit of a broad uh, broadcasting career on a number of avenues. Tell us more about that. So, yeah. So, a few years ago, I'm, I'm super into the NFL, um, American football. I played, I've played it for a long time and we got approached by a radio station to do a podcast. Started doing a podcast for them. Um, did it for a little bit and then I decided, me and, me and my mate decided, you know what, let's do this for ourselves. So I started my own podcast studio called The Vault Studio, which is where you record <laughs> no small jobs. Yes, um, A couple other people use it, but I do an NFL podcast. Um, I just love talking about football and as you can probably tell, I love talking. I love the sound of my own voice. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy it. It's an outlet for me. Um, I work a lot on my own. I spend the majority of my day on my own. So sometimes I get home and pump out a podcast and I feel really good and it's, it's fun. Um, I like doing it. So that's basically what I got into. I wouldn't call myself a broadcasting career. It's certainly not a business that rolls in a ton of money, but it's something that I just enjoy doing and I enjoy talking about sport and football in general. But how did you get approached in the first place? Through playing football. So me and my mate have been playing for a long time in the local football leagues and they got us to do some stuff on local football. Uh. As the AFL ended, you know, oh, what's Gridiron Victoria? Are we in finals? Just come on and tell us a little bit about Gridiron Victoria. And then they wanted to do stuff on NFL and their first thought was, well, what about those two guys that, you know, come and talk about them playing football? So that's how they kind of approached us, which it was really weird how it started. I never thought I would do podcasts or have a studio or anything like that. Mm. Um, they approached us and I thought, that'd be fun. I'd, that'd be fun to go and talk about football for a radio station. And then before we knew it, we're doing the podcast and then we're on live radio with guys that, you know, I'd listen to, um, stuff like that, which was really cool and then we're like, well, we could do this ourselves. Like podcasting's not that hard. We could set it up. So we set up, you know, bought all the right gear. And this is before this studio we had at my old house. I literally built a room under my house. So I mm-hmm. dug out under my house and built, again, carpentry helping with that too. I built that. And that's why I got called the Vault Studio because it was like going down into a vault under the house. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just I just love talking about football and love, love talking to people and interviewing people and that sort of stuff. So... Yeah, just going into that. It's, it's also, it's a great side hobby. I find, I find it really enjoyable. What about it? Is it just, just the talking? Is that really the main thing as a hobby? I think talking to people. I said, mm. I really enjoy just talking to people about their experience. Like, nothing makes me happy when I get like an NFL player and I've had a few that, you know, it takes time because I'm not really a big thing, but trying to get them on, they, they, you know, you call them, they go, 
you're Australian? Do they even know what football is in Australia? And I'm like, no, but I'm trying to make people know. And <laughs> the guy's like, that's really cool. That's a cool thing. Uh, you know, again, just meeting people, talking to people, having a joke with, with you know with your mates while doing a podcast. It's kind of the new. It's the new form of media, mm. and I know there's a mass, massive saturation for it, but. Yeah, I, I enjoy even you know, when you come in and do your podcast. I enjoy listening to people. I think it's interesting. I think people have a lot of interesting things to tell you, and it's not just the high-end famous people that have these cool stories and cool, you know, funny anecdotes. I think everyone has that in them. I think, and a podcast is a great way of bringing it out of people. But as you and I have, uh, have, have talked about uh, off the air, you know, there is a difference between simply just recording your thoughts, you know, in, in your own journal and sort of putting out a product. Um, cause you, you've, uh, you know, you've told me that you put in a lot of effort into trying to make the vault studio a mm-hmm. thing, you know? So really calling, I, f- I find calling it a hobby really, a really interesting thing because, you know, you, you told me before that you, you might wake up at what, like three o'clock in the morning to do an interview with All an American, time. like to do that, like that's that that feels to me like work, <laughs> you know. Yeah, uh, I know what you mean, and trust me, when I wake up and start hitting down, but as soon as I start talking to them, it doesn't feel like work anymore. Mm. It's um, again, it's it's my passion. I love football. I live for it. Yeah. I, like, there's not many minutes of the day I'm not thinking about football. <laughs> it's just what I'm. It's just what I, I've. And this is something I discovered very well in terms of my life. Like, I didn't discover it till I was 16 or 17 years old. I'm, I'm 31 now. Something I discovered late and just fell in love with. I fell in love with playing and I fell in love with talking about it. You know, the nature of the game, it, it's just such a different sport than anything I've ever been around or, or seen in Australia. And I think if people, a lot of people see it and the, fir- the first thing is, oh, you wear helmets and pads. No, it's a bit soft. That's yeah. the first Australian approach. My response to that is always go and try it and then, <laughs> then, then tell me it's soft. Um, and then the other thing is, oh, it's so stop start. Uh, it is, but once you get it and you get the beauty of the game and a lot of guys I've had mates that have hated it and then they've watched a few games with me and I've kind of explained stuff and they're like wow this is really complicated mm. said yeah it's not just 11 guys running smacking into each other there's a lot that goes around there's a lot that goes into into the game the planning all that sort of stuff so yeah I know what you mean about you know you say it feels like work if I'm getting up at 3am to interview someone it's because I really want to interview them and I've worked really hard and it's basically been a mate you tell me when you can do it and I'll do it. And I'll say, well, this time, okay, that's three in the morning. Yep, done. No worries. But at what point, uh, What? how does that convert into, a, yeah, it creating a podcast particular? Like you could you could have just as easily got a bunch of mates together, caught up once a week at a, at a pub and just had a chat and really enjoyed that. Why, why the broadcasting element of it? I think that I know a lot about football and I have a good knowledge about football and I have a lot of passion about it. Mm. And I want other people to feel my passion. I want other people to listen to my podcast and go, he really loves football. It must be great. There must be something. You know, it's not really for me at the moment, but the way he's talking about it, there must be something great about it. Because no one no one could just love something that's this, that's horrible <laughs> this much. That that that's my passion. It's to make people in Australia in particular love this sport love football and it, it's it's it that's my number one goal is to grow the game and make it bigger and better and it's why i'm so involved with my local leagues and you know gridiron in victoria and that and try and make it a better place you know i do i do a podcast about the local gridiron leagues as well just to try and grow and get more people playing and more people loving the sport and how did that branch into being a producer uh basically i find if you have the gear people want to use it <laughs> and i guess you say you know there's costs that come with running a podcast my thing was, all right, how do I subsidize these costs? Because I don't want to be coming out of pocket every month. Um, the way I subsidize it is I, I have a sponsor that gives me beer. We always have a beer on our show. So Burnley Brewing provide me with the beer for my show and I talk about them on the show and I give them a good plug all the time. Um, the other way is I thought, well, I've got this really good equipment that gets used you know, twice a week by me. Surely there's other people out there that want to do a podcast that have no idea how to do it or no, no understanding how to do it and want somewhere to record it and I can offer it at a really, really cheap rate and it goes to f- you know to fund the studio for what I want to do to help grow it and get better at YouTube and all that sort of stuff to buy better gear, buy better equipment, get a better computer, get a better screen, all that sort of stuff and that's a way to subsidize. So I started thinking and then I found that people wanted to do it and then I found I really enjoyed producing people's podcasts because I said, for example, when you came along, I thought that's an interesting idea, something I'd never think of and you know, as you did a couple, I'm like, this is actually really... In- normal people have really cool stories. Mm. It's really interesting. 
So that, again, it's just another way for me to be around, I guess, around, I, as you can tell, I'm a bit of a people person. Yeah. I, like, I like being, I feel good when I'm around people and that's producing gives me that feeling too, which I, I never thought it would. I thought it would be boring, but I, I quite enjoy it. So for anyone, obviously, you know, you wouldn't necessarily claim to be an expert or anything, no. but um, for anyone wanting to get into the game of podcasting, what, what are the things that you've learned that, again, you would have wanted to know early on? Don't expect to be the biggest podcaster in the world the first time you do a podcast. Mm. You know, you'll be basically talking to no one for a while. Mm. So expect that and be ready to commit to talking to no one. Because if you don't commit to it, then when those one person listens, they won't come back. Mm. Um, the other thing is, if you're going to do it, make sure you love doing it. Make sure that you would be... So I, I do it with four people. The four people that we do it together, we would be, as you said, we would be happily sitting once a week in a pub talking about it. You need to have that passion because when you start recording it, you don't want it to be like, as you said, getting up at 3am, you want it to be coming down going, oh God, I can't be bothered going down and doing this podcast because people feel it when you talk. Mm. People hear it. Um, and the other thing is get the right gear. Don't, there's nothing worse than when you turn on a podcast and it's clearly someone with some crappy app on their phone with their little white iPhone headphone that you can just hear. <laughs> it's awful. So make sure if you're going to do it and you do it properly, try it out first and test it, but buy the best equipment you can afford because the better it sounds. Again, if someone listens to it and hears that crackling, they're going to be like, I don't care how good this guy is. I'm not coming back. This is mm. awful to listen to. So make sure you buy the get the best gear you can afford, and then once you earn, once you work out a way to get revenue into it, whatever you're putting it, whether that's coming out of your pocket or you know funding it from somewhere else, just keep putting it back in and back in and back in. Don't don't think you're going to become a millionaire from a podcast because if you think that way, I don't think you ever will. I'd love this to be my full time job, but I'm not under the I'm not under the idea that it's ever going to be, <laughs> and I really love doing it, and that's the main thing. And when I stop loving doing it, I'll probably stop doing it. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. So where can people find your show and uh, yeah, follow you? So the Vault Studio, um, we've got thevaultstudio.com.au. Also find all social medias, we're on everything. So we are into NFL. Um, so if you're into the sport, but we are very, we're about trying to teaching people at NFL. So if you've never liked NFL before or you're just kind of a you know more basic fan of it, this is the show for you as well. You know, where we want to grow it. And also if you're ever interested in producing a podcast, um, go to the Vault Studio, just send us a message and I can have a chat with you about that. Even like I said, I'm happy just to give people advice on how it all works. Cool. All right. Thanks, James. As Yes, as in, this has been a long gestating, so I'm glad we could finally get it done. No, it was great. Thanks for having me on. All right. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed the episode. Make sure you check out our older ones. And remember, there are no small jobs, only jobs you haven't discovered yet.